In tech, people are always talking about disruption. Uber disrupted taxis. Airbnb disrupted the way people travel. A new technology swoops in and changes an existing industry. But what if the industry is new too? We're lining up around the block for the first day of legal marijuana sales in Colorado. The change could generate $67 million a year for the state budget. All of a sudden, a new legal marketplace with extensive regulatory requirements had to be built from scratch. The first one stepped up at the counter shortly after 8 a.m. He paid 60 bucks for an eighth of an ounce of pot and a marijuana-infused truffle. Smokable, drinkable, and from this bakery, edible. Those truffles, beverages, topicals, pre-rolls, and flower varieties all had to be ordered from individual vendors. But communicating with those vendors? It's a mess of text messages, in-person drop-bys, emails, and phone calls. Tedious and time-consuming, but unfortunately necessary. Fast forward to 2016. Kirin Wadira is in his Playa Vista office in Los Angeles. He's the managing partner of a VC firm called Casa Verde Capital, which specializes in investments purely in the cannabis industry. He takes a meeting with the founders of this company called LeafLink. And their idea was this, a wholesale marketplace connecting the cannabis brands with the retailers. Through LeafLink, dispensaries could get alerts when it was time to reorder, try samples, and most importantly, cut out all that time-consuming correspondence. Corinne was interested, so he tested it out with a few dispensaries to see what they thought about the system. Many liked it so much that they became customers. Casa Verde invested in LeafLink's seed round, and then its Series A, and then... The online marketplace for wholesale buyers and sellers of cannabis just raised a new $35 million round LeafLink now has a 90% market penetration in early adopting states like Colorado and Washington. In other words, smoking wheat, it's not just for Snoop Dogg anymore. I'm Damian Bradfield, and this is Influence, a show about advertising, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Today, we're talking cannabis. And to do it, we're very happy to have Kirin Wadira on the show, in quarantine from Los Angeles. And I join him from Amsterdam, a city that people used to consider the legal cannabis capital of the world. How are you feeling? Because you you came down with corona, right? I had a little bit of, of the illness as well. So yeah, I had kind of gone through the uh, the process a little early on for the US in early March. So feeling great now. But yeah, it was definitely a uh, uncertain, scary time for a little bit, but that got quickly resolved, thankfully. You're quite pioneering in COVID-19. Yes, especially for the US and for Los Angeles, for sure. Okay, but you're all good now. I'm great. Thank you very much for asking. Okay, good. And so, I mean, because we're in the middle of this pandemic, I don't think we can ignore it and uh, pretend that it's not happening around us. So, I mean, I would love to hear what's happening right now in in the cannabis industry. What's happening? What's changed? Obviously, dispensaries must be closed. I'm assuming they're closed. But I'm assuming that the delivery business is going pretty strong. Cannabis in a lot of states has actually been deemed an essential business. So in California, for example, dispensaries are still very much open. Um, There has been, of course, a push towards more delivery and e-commerce because 
clearly that is a lot more convenient. And, you know, in this moment in time when people don't really want to be leaving their houses, it's providing some, uh, you know, sort of alternative to, to actually getting in the car and, and visiting a dispensary. But in many states, uh, like I said, including California, cannabis is still an essential business. So we're actually seeing you know, for the month of March, at least that just ended, you know, record sales uh, for cannabis businesses. You're actually seeing, you know, a, a lot of people treat cannabis as we had assumed they would in what would have been a situation like this. And then now when we sort of thought about it, we thought it would be more around, you know, cannabis is a little recession proof and, and would do well even in an economic downturn. We hadn't really thought about it in the sense of a pandemic, but you know, clearly, even in, in this moment, the cannabis industry, for the most part, is, is actually thriving in states where they've deemed it an essential business. And which states are those? Because it's, I'm assuming those are very closely linked to where they're the most prolific. You know, most of the states where you have either a medical or recreational standing in that area, again, mm -hmm. that's the only places where they are legal. But I'd say the majority of states, there are a few that have gone back and forth so I think in the latest round of determining essential businesses, Massachusetts, for some reason, didn't determine cannabis an essential business, but they did determine that liquor stores were. And so that sparked some debate. That's what's so complex and interesting about cannabis, especially as it pertains to the United States, right? It's really 50 different rules and regulations, and it goes from completely illegal criminal to uh, now no longer a criminal issue to uh, some states have it for medicinal purposes. And then, you know, in, you know, 11 states plus Washington, D.C., it's actually a adult use state, which means that as long as you are above the age of 21, you can walk into a dispensary and, and purchase cannabis. How long have you been in the industry? So how much time have you spent in and around cannabis? Yeah, so I really... Um, dove in sort of headfirst in 2016. So it's been a little over okay. four years for me playing an active role in the cannabis industry. You're the managing partner of Casa Verde Capital. And that's a venture capital firm that primarily invests in the cannabis industry. And Snoop is your business partner. Is that correct? He's one of my business partners. Absolutely. I've actually known Snoop for a, a very long time. He and his manager and business partner, a gentleman by the name of Ted Chung, are folks that I've known since over 20 years at this point. So, you know, the three of us, uh, plus another partner of mine, Yoni Meyer, uh, sort of make up the, the, the management, you know, general partnership of the fund. You say you only got into cannabis in 2016. If you've known Snoop for a long time, I assume you were in it a little bit earlier. <laughs> yes, definitely had exposure <laughs> to cannabis at large, but but maybe not as much the industry. Yeah, so I um I've always been, you know, a big fan of music. I've always been a musician. When I was between high school and college, also got really uh, interested in technology and, you know, through, you know, what initially started off just as uh, fun projects building sort of, you know, music related websites for bands and things like that actually led to doing some some work with, you know, larger record labels. Long story short, in 2000, 2001, I actually got connected to Snoop. You know, as he was transitioning out of, you know, one record label to another, we stayed, you know, in touch over the years. After school, I had done work in investment banking. I spent a number of years at, at Goldman Sachs and Nomura, primarily spending most of that time in Asia. And but we stayed close and stayed in touch. And, and when I left the institutional world, all these sort of things came back together. I reconnected with, you know, Snoop and Ted, who in 2014 and 15 has started doing more work 
on what was becoming a legalized cannabis industry here in the U.S. So I was aware of what was happening. Um, and they were certainly the individuals that opened up my eyes to the opportunities. Snoop is probably the most famous person to be associated with the cannabis industry, I don't know, other than Cheech and Chong or someone like that. I yeah, think. I'd say Snoop, Willie Nelson, Bob Marley, Grateful Dead. There's a few folks who sort of fall into that category for sure. But what they say is he would be on the Mount Rushmore as far as the, uh, the cannabis industry is concerned. So... I'm assuming that Snoop's been quite under the spotlight, but also quite pioneering the whole way that the cannabis industry has been reviewed in the US. Yeah, and, you know, in certain ways, that's not necessarily positive, right? I think, you know, as we mentioned, the most famous people that have been associated with cannabis, historically, there's been a very stigmatic view of those people, right? They fall into some sort of category of stoners or gangster rappers or, you know, hippies or whatnot. We have this very you know, myopic view of what we consider to be the cannabis consumer. So in certain ways, even though I think commercially it was helpful and, and drew attention to it, um, it, it didn't necessarily push, I would say, the, the legalization efforts. I think that's really started with starting to understand how cannabis can be used from a medicinal perspective. So who's been at the forefront of pushing that then? You know, I think people started paying serious, serious attention when we started to understand how cannabis, you know, in a very effective way was being used um, to treat children, believe it or not. Um, you know, so actually it's very, very sad. Just recently, you know, one of the young children who was associated with that, a young girl by the name of Charlotte, who was the sort of inspiration for what became Charlotte's Web, which was a, a particular strain of cannabis that she was using to really manage her childhood epilepsy. She just recently passed away actually during the entire, um, you know, COVID crisis. Right. But, you know, I think it, that was one of the the big moments when you started to realize how can we how can we stop their access, um, you know, just because of these sort of archaic rules that have been around for, for, for many years and often had nothing to do with the impact of cannabis, but were really politically driven and, and whatnot. I'm no expert here, but Charlotte's Web was CBD oil. Is Correct. And yep. a big part of this comes down to education, I think, right? Because there is a certain stigma around the notion of cannabis. But I think when most people associate with, if you talk about weed or you talk about cannabis, most people would jump to lighting up a reefer and smoking a joint as opposed to oil or the extracts that, that come from the cannabis plant. You're exactly right. A big part of it was education. People starting to realize that it was, you know, actually a lot more than stigmatically how we've always viewed it. And that has been smoking primarily. So that, um, I think, was a, a, a big shift. And now, especially here in the U.S., where you have you know, forms of recreational and, and medicinal legalization, you know, that is starting to wean away. You know, there's so many different ways to actually consume from edibles and beverages and topicals and tinctures. And so I think that is starting to change. And then, you know, really making this a huge sort of economic incentive for governments as well mm -hmm. started becoming, you know, a real reason why legalization, you know, really took a quick turn in 2014. And that really became an inflection point to the state where we are now, where you have over 30 states with some form of legalization here in the U.S., uh, either medicinal or recreational. The monetization part is where it gets interesting, because if you look at a country like the Netherlands or Amsterdam, where we're based, Right. There is this perception that the Dutch are very liberal. So there's a perception that marijuana and um, prostitution were legalized a long time ago because the Dutch are so liberal. The Dutch are incredibly good right. and Calvinistic and uh, intelligent when it comes to monetization of things and particularly taxation. 
So the Dutch recognized that a lot of people were smoking marijuana and, and using prostitutes. So why should they, you know, push it under the carpet as they would do in the UK? Um, what they should do is just make it legal so that they can benefit from the taxation of hobbies. There is no way near the level of marketing or uh, choice right. that you can get access to in the States, in Amsterdam. It's still very crude. It's very basic. Why do you think that is? Well, how come the US suddenly took this, you know, leapfrog jump and basically you know, moved the market, I don't know, 20 years away from where it is in Amsterdam right now? It has a lot to do with how things were managed in the US. So you have to remember that it's very different state to state. But a state in America is the size of the Netherlands. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so your states are, you know, European countries, just to put it into perspective. Yeah, yeah, no, no, of course. And in the case of California, right, you're talking yeah. about the sixth largest economy in the world. So yeah, absolutely. But, you know, in Massachusetts, for example, it's, um, you know, been what's, what's known as a limited license model to start. So when it began, it came on with only a very few number of participants and there were very sort of strict rules as to, who could produce, what you could produce, et cetera, et cetera. In California, you had kind of very vague medicinal laws. So even before we moved into recreational territory, we had a very vibrant cannabis economy here in California as well. It became more so when things changed to fully recreational. I think it, it has a lot to do, again, with how much controls there were and, and have been on the industry. This really has been, uh, you know, sort of excitement of bringing in more and more tax revenue. So what's happening with COVID-19 and how is the pandemic impacting the industry? Two things have come out of COVID, which are really fascinating for the cannabis industry. The first, you know, related to your earlier question about how have cannabis businesses been doing in this time? And the reality is that they have been thriving. So, you know, they're not necessarily tied to economic movements or, or cyclical, you know, natures of, of other industries. And, and that's quite appealing. And the second is, as we come out of COVID, you know, the country at large, but of course, all of the states are going to be in desperate need for more tax revenue as, you know, their traditional economies have really been battered and the spend has been, you know, so immense. So that's, you know, in another way why I think cannabis will get a lot more attention going forward because it can be such a huge source of additional revenue for states. So in the Netherlands, the cafes have been closed. They haven't had that dispensation that they are uh, you know, deemed medicinal. So the cafes are closed, but you can you can get deliveries. But I would imagine here the business is... Right taking quite quite a hit. Sure. It's quite fortuitous for you guys that in the states, in those particular states, it's it's been deemed medicinal. And I can understand it. And I think, again, if we pull it back to COVID-19, a massive amount of stress is being created through this pandemic. I can imagine that it is quite a lifeline for people to be able to just take their minds off it and to take the sharp edges off in a time when there is, you know, huge amounts of anxiety. And I would think post-COVID-19, we're going to get into a phase where... Um, you know, the fallout of it will be increases in levels of loneliness and depression and uh, uh, and all the rest of it once, you know, the dust has settled. I think, I think you're absolutely right. And and yeah. again, it's just, it takes time, right? I think you, you can't expect change to happen so quickly in anywhere and, and, and let alone the US. So if you think about the last six years alone, we've seen tremendous progress, right? To think Colorado is the first state to to have, you know, adult use at that point, and now we're looking at 11 states plus Washington, D.C., and more states coming online. And, you know, obviously, even more broadly, globally, you know, medicinal approach has been being adopted all over Europe. Canada is the first G7 nation that's that's fully um, a recreational country. 
a lot has progressed and it will continue to. People think these things will happen overnight and will go from cannabis being a fully banned substance to being able to purchase it at 7-Eleven um, the next day. And that's never how things work. So there's an element of patience and timing, but the only silver lining for a, a pandemic of, of this nature, it really does um, start bringing attention to the things that we've been spending a lot more time and attention on, such as not prohibiting cannabis on a sort of federal basis. And, and I think that will eventually end up being a, a fairly large positive from a distribution standpoint becomes a little bit gray, though, when we talk about it from medicinal purposes, because if I was going to my doctor to be given something, he would say, you know, Damien, you're suffering, suffering from depression. We recommend that you take, you know, pill X, Y or Z. Right. And he or she would then determine how many of those pills I would get and um, how many I should take over what time frame. Um, when I go to a dispensary and I decide for myself that I should take X, Y or Z, I determine then the portion or the uh, the frequency of the uh, the gummy or the tea or whatever it is that I'm going to drink. And there's no one regulating or controlling how much I take. So the medicinal term is a little bit misleading in that respect because it, it, there isn't anybody actually helping you to control it. With alcohol, you can argue that's the same, but then there isn't a medicinal label on alcohol, right? Right. No, no, no. And, and I think that's accurate. This is still an, an evolving industry and things will change. So just like Many of us turn to various over-the-counter substances to sort of self-medicate or manage various issues we have, whether it's related to sleep or anxiety, stress, et cetera. You know, in, in certain ways, cannabis falls under that same category. And you are determining for yourself, this is how I like to consume, this is how much I should consume, et cetera. And then again, you know, there are many doctors in, in medicinal states who will actually tell you very clearly, like, I'm recommending this for you. This is how much you should take, et cetera. In certain instances, you are actually seeing cannabis becoming an actual pharmaceutical product, right? So in the case of Epidiolex, which is a pill that's actually uh, targeted towards childhood epilepsy mm -hmm. and is made by GW Pharma, a UK pharmaceutical firm, there it is just acting like any other medication that, that you would right. um, you know, get a prescription for. So yes, there's a huge spectrum to how these things work. Even for our own understanding, right? We, we like to put a box around, you know, an industry or space. And but the reality is, cannabis is so vast, and it has the ability and, and will actually disrupt so many different industries that it's hard to think about it in in strictly one one specific channel. The industry, as you said, is huge. Talk us through the supply chain, right? So the dispensaries in the U.S. are not affected by COVID nineteen. In fact, they're actually doing really, really well. Where's the stuff actually coming from? Who's actually producing it and who's delivering it? And are they not being affected? I mean, is there not a supply chain issue that the dispensary is not able to get their hands on stuff? The supply chain is very much relegated to each individual state. So in California, for example, anything you, you buy in California has been produced and manufactured and grown and distributed all within the state. And that's the rule. So you have uh, all these micro economies from a state to state basis. So what you have, um, you know, from a supply chain perspective, is you have cultivation, you have manufacturing, you have lab testing, and you need to actually, uh, you know, pass lab tests in order to come into a dispensary. You have the distributors, and then you have the retailers. And so, you know, where cannabis is being deemed an uh, essential business, those, uh, all of those folks within that supply chain are allowed to sort of continue working. Now, it is incredibly challenging because we also have to, you know, consider the health and safety of the employees and workers and still maintaining social distancing. So in my head, I've got, you know, sort of mom and pop shop knocking out 
a few little bags every day to send off somewhere. But it's not like that, right? In order to produce and deliver to MedMen, a massive publicly traded cannabis dispensary chain at scale, it's got to be quite a sizable operation. Yes. Oh, no, absolutely. So you have massive facilities with hundreds of employees and all sorts of you know specialized equipment, et cetera. Yeah, this is very much becoming a institutional large business. So it's something that is operating now at a much larger scale than 10 years ago or whatnot would have been a much more sort of craft industry. And so what sort of financial scale are we up to today? Oh, I mean, we're talking about, you know, an industry that is producing billions and billions of dollars of, of revenue in, in of legal revenue. So we estimate sort of in 2019, the legal cannabis industry was producing, you know, anywhere from call it, you know, nine to, to $11 billion of revenue, you know, and we think that's going to continue to grow wow. quite rapidly. Because cannabis is still illegal on a federal level. Right. You can't bank traditionally, right? So what do you do with that $11 billion? Where is it? Is it in mattresses? <laughs> uh, some of it, yeah. So, I mean, you know. <laughs> so you're on Snoop's house, just in mattresses. <laughs> well, no, you know, so the misconception is that you have no banking. That's not okay. true. So there are banking institutions that are not under the guise of the federal government. So state chartered banks and credit unions in particular um, are able to bank the cannabis industry uh, as long as they go through their uh, traditional compliance checks. The real issue is with the federal infrastructure. So you know, your JP Morgan, Chase Banks, and Bank of Americas, and, and those folks, um, they cannot touch the cannabis industry at all because it is still viewed as a, you know, Schedule One substance at the federal level. So going back to Casa Verde, so you and Snoop decided that you're going to set up an investment firm and to invest in the ancillary side of cannabis industry. So can you talk us through some of the investments that you've made or some of the companies that you're involved with? Yeah, so it varies, but a lot of what we've done has been in technology. Mm -hmm. um, so we're investors in a business called GreenBits, which is one of the largest point of sale businesses in the cannabis industry. So you would think about it like Square, but specifically for cannabis. And the reason you have a technology specifically for the cannabis industry is because what people don't really understand is cannabis is in fact one of the most compliant and transparent industries in the world. So when a state legalizes cannabis for adult use, they often adapt what's called a seed to sale tracking system, which ensures you have real time insight as to what is happening across the entire supply chain at all times. So what GreenBits does, for example, is it actually automates the reporting into the state government automatically on a daily basis. And that's what separates GreenBits from a, from a square or a traditional point of sale. Um, we're actually investors in what is the largest seed to sale compliance system for governments as well, which is called Metric. M-E-T-R-C. And, and Metric, you know, their clients are the state of California, Colorado, Massachusetts, Nevada, Oregon, etc. And what they do is provide that infrastructure to allow states to properly monitor the cannabis industry, not just from a health and safety perspective, but to also get a really solid understanding of the revenue opportunities as well. And this is, this is quite unique because you don't have this level of of transparency and compliance in most industries. And so in many ways, you know, the, the cannabis industry, because of its nascency, is in fact, you know, one of the most tech forward industries around. Has that been, you know, put upon you by government as it is being mandated? Or has the industry decided that because of the stigma for where it's coming from, it needs to double down on this sort of thing? 
I mean, look, I don't think any industry willingly wants to put on more regulation on itself. So it definitely has been something that's been driven by governments. Okay. But the innovation has been around making that process a lot easier and using technology to automate a lot of, of those functions as opposed to just creating undue burden there. And again, it's all about where you start from, right? One of the reasons we see so much pushback from traditional banks or other industries when government wants to impose more regulation is because you are disrupting this industry that has already been in operation for many years. What's happening in cannabis is not disruption, right? It's we're starting from the ground up. It's pure innovation and, and creation. Right. So when we begin a legal industry in California or Colorado or anywhere else and say, hey, this is how it's going to work. This is what you have to be able to do. You know, we're able to build these businesses with that in mind. So is most of the investment that you guys are doing B2B or is there also a B2C element? Yeah, there's also a B2C element. So we have a couple of uh, direct-to-consumer businesses which help power e-commerce and delivery. We invested uh, in a business called Dutchie out of Oregon, um, which empowers retailers to turn on delivery and turn on e-commerce in their stores. So as you can imagine, they're doing very well right now as more and more consumers push on to delivery and also more and more retailers you know, realize, hey, foot traffic maybe not be as strong as we need, especially in this moment. We want to turn on the ability to, um, you know, provide delivery ourselves as well. So we're investors in a business called Vangst, which is the leading staffing business in the cannabis industry. So for example, in Colorado, you need to be licensed by the MED, which is the regulatory authority there to even, you know, work temporarily in a cannabis facility. I mean, it sounds like a very sophisticated market, right? I'm sure there are already degrees in cannabis production or right. an education program in place for people to move into the cannabis industry and the rest of it. Where it breaks down for me is if I drive around a city like Los Angeles, the billboards that you see around town <laughs> do not in any way reflect any degree of sophistication. It's almost as if we went back yeah. to the 50s and 60s and it's girls lying on bonnets of cars, uh, you know, with a joint in their hand saying, uh, you know, shop here or come to MedMen. You're so right. That is starting to change in many ways. You know, one of the issues we have in the cannabis industry is, of course, around marketing and, and advertising, because a lot of the more sophisticated digital channels are actually closed off to the cannabis industry, right? So like what? So Facebook, you can't Facebook, Facebook. Google AdWords, things of that nature. Okay. You, you can't purchase, um, you know, the, that kind of inventory. But interestingly, you can buy billboards. But you can buy billboards. So again, it varies from, hmm. um, you know, so uh, you are actually seeing a lot of these old school ways of advertising actually being quite prevalent in cannabis you know, strictly out of necessity, because look, I can't target it in the way I need to. So let me strategically place billboards uh, along the highways. You know, one of the areas that is a gray area for cannabis has been, you know, a, a lot of this sort of influencer marketing. Right. So the ability to use folks with a, with a strong following on one of the social media platforms and to push a product there, you are getting around it. It can't be a traditional ad in the way that we are seeing influencer marketing. Those influencers in many instances may need to have ownership, even a small ownership of those businesses. And therefore, they're not necessarily pushing an ad, but promoting something they own. It's very, it's actually quite complex. The billboards that I've seen around town, I think that the least sophisticated advertising that I've probably seen in however <laughs> uh, many years it is, it goes completely contrary to the, what you've been talking about. Because if if I look at the consumer in a store like MedMen and I talk to people, you know, that consume 
Right. It's very sophisticated. The people in a, and people in California, that's my reference point, right? People in California um, consuming cannabis products are not bums and hippies and you know, the perception that we had from from Cheech and Chong. Right. But you know, doctors, lawyers, um, you know, people in marketing, people that work for tech companies, whatever it is, it's a very sophisticated market. Yeah. And it's expensive. Right. Absolutely. You know, we go through these phases. Now, MedMen in, in particular is a company that has spent a tremendous amount of money on advertising. It's one of the the first dispensaries that really was constructed in the um, imagery of, of more sophisticated retail like Apple and others. There is still a very large existing core cannabis consumer that is going into many other dispensaries and is either driven by price. So, you know, wants, you know, the most potency at the cheapest price or is really driven by very, very high-end flower product. So the majority of the cannabis consumption is not necessarily by your new wave of consumer, right? In many instances, it is this very fragmented business. And so you will still see the, the more stigmatic traditional consumer in many ways driving a lot of the traffic volume and dollars into the industries. Because the new consumer is probably more likely to be introduced to cannabis through vaping. Yeah. my That's my theory. And if I look at teenagers, the idea, the notion of vaping wasn't around when I was 14 years old, but the concept that you can simply pick up, you know, an, uh, a pen and it could be filled with anything and it's pretty much odorless for teenage kids, I would imagine is quite attractive. Exactly. Um, and the likelihood of you getting caught is very slim. How do we make sure that it doesn't get to fall into the wrong hands when it's so easy to hide? Yeah, that's a big concern for, for everyone. So in the U.S., especially for cannabis, and this is unlike um, tobacco, everything is tracked and traced. So for mm -hmm. example, you know, you can buy tobacco products and e-cigarette products. I mean, there are hardly any tobacco stores, right? You can buy them in every gas station and, and every 7-Eleven, and, and they're widely sort of available. Whereas for cannabis, it, the distribution is strictly within licensed dispensaries. And so now before you even walk into a dispensary in California, you're not just getting carded at before you are able to walk into the store, but you're actually recording all your information into the system and you're actually registering at the store. And so only once you've become a registered customer of the store, then you can walk in and start purchasing. And then once you've done that, everything you've purchased is tied to you down to the very specific unique code on each product that is determined at the state government level. It's shown who it's sold to. So in the instance that this is ending up in the hands of someone underage, we can actually track it right back to the customer who purchased and the store which sold it, et cetera, and can sort of investigate from that end. So in many ways, we've incorporated a lot of rules and infrastructure to limit that as much as possible. But earlier on, we talked about monetization, right? So play this COVID-19 uh, crisis out, drives the economy into a major recession. We need to increase taxation to pull a few more uh, dollars back into the coffers. A few more states start legalizing uh, cannabis. The, the cannabis industry grows. Marketing dollars suddenly then get freed up and we start you know, spending money much more widely than we were previously. How is the cannabis industry going to start marketing when all the traditional channels, apart from, we can't, there are only so many billboards you can buy, how are they going to actually get this product into people's hands when in terms of marketing, you're actually, your hands are quite tied? 
Yeah. And again, I think it's going to happen in various different forms, right? And so while the traditional areas of spend like Facebook and Instagram uh, and Google marketing may may not be available to us, you still can also uh, avail of traditional PR and, and maybe get some paid media it's just relying on other avenues and really hoping that you know you can develop a brand following um, through word of mouth, experiential, print. There's a brand here in California called Loon, L-E-U-N-E, which has done you know a really good job in tying up with musical artists and throwing specific events. You know they've created a really strong aesthetic. They're developing a very loyal, engaged following on Instagram. But the reality is, look, any of these things take time. Right. right. In order to build a very real successful brand that, uh, you know, starts to have pricing power and is not just driven by how cheap your product is versus another. It takes a lot of energy and it would be great if we did have access to all the traditional modes of advertising that that everyone else does. But I think in many ways it's, it's making the, the industry a lot more creative and potentially building brand loyalty that can withstand and, and, and uh, be a real competitive advantage once these things do eventually open up for the cannabis industry. Karen, it's been brilliant. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Damien. Thanks for having me. That concludes our episode today. Thanks to Karen for a fascinating tour through the cannabis industry. Influence is hosted by me, Damien Bradfield. Our producer is the amazing Rachel Swaby, with help from Elise Hugh and Alyssa Jung-Perry. Influence is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave us a review. Think of it as a small act of kindness. You can follow me on Twitter at DJ Bradfield. Influence is a podcast from WeTransfer, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. Thank you so much for listening.